7. The literary societies and debating clubs, the school parties and dances, the school thus comes to assume a considerable part in the boys' and girls' social training, much more than was the case 20 or even 10 years ago, and the whole trend of educational movement in this matter is toward doing more even than it now does. In some cases schools have nearly drifted into the social work, without definite aims and without conspicuously good results, just as some parents have drifted into acceptance of the situation, with little oversight and a comfortable shifting of responsibility. When this sort of school and this sort of parent happen to be the joint guardians of a girl's social training, it usually happens that the girl discovers some things by a painful if not heartbreaking trial and error method, and other things she quite fails to discover at all. Most of all, she needs her mother at this time a wise, interested, companionable mother, who knows much about what goes on at school parties and at school generally, but who never forces confidences and, indeed, who never needs to, an elder sister sort of mother, who helps, and she needs also teachers who supervise and chaperone social affairs with a full realization that social training is in progress and that lives are being made or marred. There are schools and there are mothers who look upon every phase of school life as contributing to the educative process, and these find in the social affairs of the school their opportunities to teach some vital lessons. Some schools are lengthening the free time between periods, merely for the purpose of adding to the informal social intercourse between pupils. Wise teachers as well as wise mothers will see that the social phase of school life, especially in the evening, is not overdone. Not only health but future fullness and happiness suffer if the girl goes out so much that going out becomes the rule and staying at home the exception. It is not usually, however, the social affairs of the school alone which cause the girl to develop the habit of too many evenings away from home. It is the school party plus the church social, plus the moving pictures, plus the girls club, plus the theater, plus choir practice, plus the informal evening at her chums, plus a dozen other dissipations that in the course of a few years change a quiet, home-loving little schoolgirl into a gadding, overwrought, an easy woman, unless one has tried it. It is perhaps hard to realize how difficult it is for an individual mother to regulate social custom in her community even for her own daughter without causing the girl unhappiness and possibly destroying her delight in her home. No girl enjoys leaving the party at ten when the other girls stay until twelve. Nor does she enjoy declining invitations when the other girls all go. But what the individual mother finds difficult, community sentiment can easily accomplish. The women's club or the mother's club or the parent-teacher association, or better yet all three, may profitably discuss the question, and may set about the creation of the sentiment required. Quite as important as, how often shall she go, is the question, with whom is she going? There are two ways of approaching the problem here involved. One requires more knowledge for the girl herself, that she may better judge what constitutes a worthy companion. The other is reached by the better training of boys, that more of them may develop into the sort of young men with whom we may trust our daughters. Parents who take the time and trouble to acquaint themselves with the boys in their daughter's social circle will find themselves better able to aid the girl in her choice of friends. The very best place for this getting acquainted is the girl's own home, to which, therefore, Young people should often be informally invited, nor should parents neglect occasional opportunities to observe their daughter's friends in other environment at the church social or supper, at entertainments, at school, or on the street. Fortunately the revolt against a dual standard of purity for men and women holds promise of a larger proportion of clean, controlled, trustworthy boys. 
it will never be quite safe. However, to trust either our boys or our girls to resist instincts implanted by nature and restrained only by the artificial barriers of society, unless we keep their imaginations busy, and unless we implant ideals of conduct high enough to make them desire self-control for ends which seem beautiful and good to themselves, the adolescent period is especially favorable for the formation of ideals, and a high conception of love and marriage will probably prove the truest safeguard our boys and girls can have. The reading of the period is of special importance, at no other time of life will altruism, self-sacrifice, high ideals of honor and of love, make so strong an appeal as now. Adolescent reading must make the most of this fact. Some of the great love stories of literature and biography should be read, especially one or two which involve the putting aside of desire at the call of a higher motive. At least one story involving the world-old theme of the betrayed woman the Scarlet Letter, perhaps or Adam Bede should be required reading for every adolescent girl, and should after reading be the subject of thoughtful and loving discussion by the girl and her mother in one of the confidential chats which should be frequent between them. Girls must learn from their mothers and teachers to distrust the boy who shows any inclination to take liberties, and they must also learn that girls, consciously or more often otherwise, daily put temptation in the way of boys who desire to do right, and invite liberties from the other sort. Restraint, in dress, in carriage, in manners, and in conversation, must be made to seem right and desirable to the girl, for her own sake and no less for the good of the other sex. This of course means that teachers must set fine examples before the girl in their own dress and deportment, to counteract the dangerous tendencies which have become intensified by the wholesale breaking of social customs during the war. It is necessary that parents and teachers give very careful attention to the dress of girls and to the demeanor of boys and girls of the adolescent period. Many teachers are improperly dressed and setting the wrong example. Many parents are dressing carelessly and sending their girls to high school improperly dressed. The boys are tempted yes, are forced to observe the bodies of their girl classmates, in study rooms, halls, laboratories, and on playgrounds. These girls who are immodestly dressed are not only exposing themselves to danger and inviting familiarities, but are tempting the boys to go wrong. Many of the tragedies in our schools can be traced to the source. To handle this very serious and very difficult problem it is necessary that all mothers of high school boys and girls organize and cooperate with principals and teachers. The task is gigantic, for the customs and suggestions which are responsible for present-day conditions are many and permeate our magazines books, moving pictures, dances, and nearly all social gatherings. Many superintendents, teachers, and parents have been very seriously studying these social and moral problems and making plans to start reforms at once in the public schools. The most practical method thus far presented appears to be the requirement of uniform dress for all girls in the upper grades and in high school. This custom is already established in some of our best private schools. Uniform dress has a very democratic training which commends it. It is less expensive than the present varied styles. It is practical, for it avoids discrimination which would lead to many private difficulties. The girl has now reached the time when her bits of knowledge of sex matters, gained gradually since the first strings of curiosity in her little girlhood, should be gathered, summarized, and given practical application to the mature life she will soon enter upon. Thoughtful investigation does not lead to the conclusion that girls need especially a detailed physiological presentation of the subject so much as a study of the psychological aspects of the sex life. Personal purity is primarily a matter of mind. 
girls who all their lives have been familiar with the mystery of birth, who at puberty have been instructed in the delicacy of the sexual organs and processes and in the care they must exercise to bring them to normal development, are now ready to be taught the vital necessity of subordinating the animal to the spiritual in the sex life. It may seem unwise and unnecessary to put before young girls so dark and distressing a subject as the social evil. Yet I know of no way to combat this evil without teaching all girls what must be avoided. When girls realize that the social evil one rests upon a foundation of purely unrestrained animal instinct, too, that a single sexual misstep has ruined thousands upon thousands of girls' lives, three, that ignorance or the one misstep has led thousands to a permanent life of shame, four, that such a life means, sooner or later, sorrow, impaired or destroyed health, disgrace, and early death to its woman victims, five, that the social evil destroys the efficiency and the moral worth of men, six, that it sets free deadly disease germs to permeate society, causing a told misery among the innocent, then, and not until then, can they be taught one, to recognize and fear animal instinct and restrain by higher motive, two, to guard their own instincts, three, to hold men to a high standard of social purity and to help them attain it, nor does this teaching necessitate morbid consideration of the subject, it will, in fact, in many cases clear away the morbid curiosity and surreptitious seeking after information in which a taught girls indulge, skillfully and delicately taught this knowledge is an important and serious part of women's work, girls will be sweeter and more womanly for the knowledge of their responsibility to society and to their inborn offspring. Schools that attempt such a course for girls are finding their chief difficulty in discovering people properly endowed by nature and properly trained to teach it. To give such work into any but the wisest hands invites disaster. To make it a study of the physical basis of sexual life is disaster in itself. Service. Through making oneself a pure member of society and through helping others to keep the same standard this must be the keynote of the teaching, an education toward social efficiency and social uplift. Chapter X The Girls Work The Adolescent Girl Already the product of a general training which has aimed at all-round development of body, mind, and spirit, is now ready for the specializing which shall place her in tune with the world of industry and help her to make for herself a permanent and full place in society. Henceforward the girls' training must face her double possibilities. She must not be allowed to have an eye single to making an industrial place for herself, nor can those who educate her fail to see the double work she must do. Any consideration of the subject of girls' work outside the home or work in the home for financial return must begin with a general survey of the field of industry, discovering what women have done and are doing, together with the effects of gainful occupation upon the character and efficiency of women. The United States Census reports for 1910 give the following figures. Number of females 10 years and over year engaged in gainful occupations 1882.647.157.1890 April 0532.1905.319.397.1910.8.075.772 It is thus seen that gainful occupations for women have increased greatly in the 30 years covered by the report. At present 21.2% of all females or 23.4 of all over 10 years of age, are engaged in work for wages. Further tabulation brings out the fact that, whereas the age period from 21 to 44 shows the largest percentage of men employed in gainful work, women show the largest proportion of their numbers so employed during the age period from 16 to 20. Evidently the girls are at work, 
the figures follow, males 10 years and over females 10 years and over age period percent age period percent 10 13 16 point 6 10 13 8 point 0 14 15 41 point 4 14 15 19 point 8 16 20 79 point 2 16 20 39 point 9 21 44 96 point 7 21 44 26 point 3 45 and over 85 point 9 45 and over 15.7 compare with these figures the following table, ages at which women marry 11.2%, or 1.9, of all women marry before 2047.3, It will be observed that since the percentage of women that work decreases after 20, the number of women who marry and presumably become homemakers is very largely increased. These figures would seem to indicate that girls go to a work early, that as yet industry does not largely prevent marriage and that marriage does in many or most cases stop women's industrial careers. Inquiry as to what women are doing in the industrial world elicits important facts. It would seem that all its trainers, for the present we take all the labor for our province, is very nearly a bare statement of attested fact. The census report includes 509 closely classified occupations. Women are found in all but 43, even allowing for the inaccuracy of such figures and passing over the occupations which take in only an occasional woman. It is seen that, woman's sphere, can no longer be arbitrarily defined. The following facts and figures for women give us food for thought, farm laborers working out 337.5 to 2 iron and steel industries 29.182 chemical industries 15.577 clay, glass and stone industries 11.849 electrical supply factories 11.041 lumber and furniture industries 17.214 steam railroad laborers 3.248 illustration photographed by C. Park Pressy the 1910 census showed over 330,000 women employed as farm laborers this number did not include wives or daughters of farm owners the foregoing facts concern occupations which were once associated entirely with men if we enter the ranks of more womanly work we shall find, dressmakers 447.760 milliners 122.070 sewers and sewing machine operators 231.106 telephone operators 88.262 nurses 187.420 clerks and saleswomen in stores 362.081 stenographers and typists 263.315 bookkeepers, cashiers and accountants 187.155 cooks 333.436 laundresses not in laundries 520.004 teachers 478.027 these are of course nearly a few among the 450 kinds of work in which women are found. Any survey of women's work comes close to a general survey of industry. We shall find that in some occupations the proportion of men is much larger than that of women. In others women have made rapid strides. The accompanying diagram shows that in professional service, in domestic and personal service, and in clerical occupations women are found in largest numbers. In domestic and personal service the women outnumber the men more than two to one. In professional service there are four women to five men, a large proportion of the women being teachers. In the clerical occupations we have one woman to each two men. In manufacturing one woman to six men. In agriculture one woman to seven men. 
and in trade 1 to 8. The occupations for women have been changed somewhat by the new industrial conditions forced upon us by the war, but it is very probable that in a few years the industrial world will return to its normal status before the war for both men and women. Illustration, copyright by Underwood and Underwood Farmers. During the World War women at home and abroad rendered especially valuable services in agricultural work if it is true that women are claiming and will continue to claim all labor for their province. The claim must rest upon one of two assumptions, either women are physically, mentally, and morally identical in their capabilities with men, or differences in physical, mental, and moral makeup must be considered as not affecting work. Most of us are not yet ready to agree to either of these premises. We must therefore believe that some occupations are more suitable for one sex than for the other. The fact island however, that only a small group of radical thinkers have made the opposite claim. Women are found. It is true, in a large number of the occupations in which men are found, but they are there for some other reason than that they claim all labor as their sphere. Some are driven by the stern necessity of doing whatever work is at hand, some by ignorance of their unfitness, or of the unfitness of the work for them, some by the spirit of the age which says, Come, be free, try these things that men do, see if they suit you, find your sphere, probably, however. This last reason for entering unsuitable occupations is the one least often underlying the choice. Girls select vocations in the main as boys do. Until very lately chance has been the ruling element far oftener than anything else. Studies in industry are now for the first time giving us adequate information as to requirements for efficiency, working conditions, wages, living possibilities, and the effects, moral and physical, of various occupations upon both men and women. The problems arising out of the crossing and recrossing of these various elements are as yet but vaguely understood. The great gain lies in the fact that their solution is being sought. The community is of necessity interested in working women as it is in working men. Without these workers the community does not exist. When they are real paid, overworked, underfed, discontented, or inefficient, the community necessarily suffers. When they work under proper conditions, the community shares their prosperity. It is thus coming to be seen that the condition of workers is the concern of all the members of the community. Illustration, photograph by Brown Bros. Factory workers, sewers and sewing machine operators to the number of over 230.000, according to the 1919 census, are employed in the United States in the case of the woman worker. However, and especially of the young woman worker, the community has a further interest because of the service that women render as the mothers of the next and indeed of all future generations. If, then, it is shown that women are physically unfit for certain occupations that men may follow with safety, it becomes the business of the community to protect women, even against themselves if necessary, and to deter them from entering such lines of work. The community must make use of various agencies in bringing about the proper relations between women and their work. It may use legislation, thereby securing, for example, factory inspectors to improve the sanitary and moral conditions in the places where women and girls are employed. It may use the school, the library, and various civic improvement forces to inform both girls and their parents as to conditions under which girls should work. It may employ vocational guides to make proper connections between women and their work, for all these agencies to do satisfactory work. The first requisite is knowledge of conditions. This means skillful work upon a vast and rapidly increasing body of facts, and wide dissemination of the results of such work. Illustration, 
copyright by Underwood and Underwood in employed utilizing their spare time to make themselves more efficient. The community may make use of the schools for such purposes we may not stop here to consider what legislatures have done and are doing to improve conditions, other than to mention that the number of hours that women may work is restricted in some states, as is night work, and that a minimum wage is required in some. Our question, however, is not so much what is forbidden women in the way of work, as what women and girls will choose to do of the work which is not forbidden. Facts as to what women are doing concern us mainly as material from which to deduce information of value to the girls who have not yet chosen. A serious obstacle to a wise choice on the part of young girls who are pushing into industrial occupations is the uncertainty of their continuing as workers outside the home. The average length of the girl's industrial life is computed to be only about five years. She enters upon work at an age when it is often impossible to tell whether she will marry or remain single. She is usually unable to know whether or not she will desire to marry. The great majority of girls have therefore no stable conditions upon which to build a choice. The work girls choose and their instability in the work they enter upon are direct results of these unstable conditions. Many girls feel the need of little or no training, and apply for any work obtainable, merely because they anticipate that their industrial career will soon be over. A government report on the condition of women and girl wage earners in the United States gives the following facts concerning 1.391 women working in stores, average length of service 5.17 years average wage, first year 4.69 per week second year 5.28, tenth year 9.81, among 3.421 factory women investigated, average length of service 4.46 years average wage, First year 4.62 per week second year 5.34, tenth year 8.48. These stores and factories were presumably filled by girls who seized the most available source of a weekly wage regardless of all but the pay envelope. Few of them remained more than five years, and those who did remain did not receive adequate increase in their pay by the tenth year for workers of ten years experience. Illustration, photographed by Brown Bros, a cotton mill worker. Unfortunately in the factories girls are too often influenced by the pay envelope rather than by any special fitness for the work they are to do the whole industrial situation as it concerns women would indicate that women even more than men show lack of discrimination in seeking to place themselves, and that the sources of information for them have been few if not entirely lacking. Happily these conditions are changing. We have now to teach girls to avail themselves of the information and the guidance at hand and to learn to discriminate in their choice of work. Girls must realize that in skillful, mechanical work, done always with a mental reservation that it is merely a temporary expedient, keeps women's wages low, destroys confidence in female capacity, and has definite bearing not only on the individual woman's earning capacity, but on her character as well. Girls must learn to choose in such a way that their work may be an opening into a life career or may be an enlightening prelude to marriage and the making of a home. Some of the women who uphold the doctrine of equality between the sexes make the mistake of thinking and of teaching that there can be no equality without identical work. They take the attitude that unless women do all the sorts of work that men do, they are unjustly deprived of their rights. Our contention is rather that women have higher rights than that of identical work with men. They above all other workers, should have the right of intelligent choice of work which they can do to the advantage of themselves, their offspring, and the community. Such a choice will ignore the question of sex as a drawback, accepting it, on the other hand, merely as a condition which, like other conditions, complicates but does not necessarily hamper choice.
No girl need feel hampered by her sex because she chooses not to do work which fails either to utilize her peculiar gifts or to lead in what seems to her a profitable direction. No girl should feel that her industrial experience, however short, has nothing to contribute to the home life of which she dreams. No girl need waste the knowledge and skill gained in industrial life when she abandons gainful occupation for the home. Homemaking education, with industrial experience, ought to make the ideal preparation for life work. This, however, can be true only when the girl's industrial experience is of the right sort. Girls must therefore be led to choose the developing occupation. It is a part of the world's economy to lead them to this choice. Footnotes, Chapters I The Girls Work Continued Classification of Occupations It is well at the outset to recognize that vocation choosing is at best a complicated matter which, to be successfully carried out, demands not only much information, but information from different viewpoints. It is not enough to ensure a living, even a good living, in the work a girl chooses. We must take into consideration the girl's effect upon society as a teacher, nurse, saleswoman, or office worker, and no less, in view of her evident destiny as mother of the race, must we consider society's effect upon her, as it finds her in the place she has chosen, in other words, will she serve society to the best of her ability, and will her service fit her to be a better homemaker than she would have been had no vocation outside the home intervene between her school training and her final settling in a home of her own making? This double question must find answer in consideration of vocations from each of several viewpoints. We may classify occupations open to girls one from the standpoint of the girl's fitness, physical and psychological, two from the standpoint of industrial conditions, the sanitary, mental, and moral atmosphere, and the rewards obtainable, three as factors increasing, decreasing, or not affecting the girl's possible home efficiency or the likelihood of taking up home life. Four from the standpoint of the girl's education, five from the standpoint of service to society. Our first classification concerns the girl's fitness for this or that work. The everyday work of the world in which our girls are to find a part may be separated into three fairly well-marked classes, making things, distributing things, and service. The first question we must ask concerning a girl desirous of finding work island then, Toward which of these classes does her natural ability and therefore probably her inclination tend? Natural hand workers make poor saleswomen, natural traders or saleswomen are likely to be uninterested and ineffective hand workers. The girl whose interests are all centered in people must not be condemned to spend her life in the production of things, nor, as is far more common, must the girl who can make things, and enjoys making them, spend her life in merely handling the things other people have made as she strives to make connection between these things and the people who want them. Then there is the girl who is efficient and who finds her pleasure in doing things for people. Service and we must remember that service is a wide term, and that no stigma should attach to the class of workers which includes the teacher, the physician, and the minister is clearly the direction in which such a girl's vocational ambition should be turned. It would be idle to assert that all women are sweet to marriage, motherhood, and domestic life. Although there is little doubt that early training may develop in some a suitability which would otherwise remain unsuspected. When, however, early training fails to bring out any inclination toward these things, we may well consider seriously before we exert the weight of our influence toward them. Home-mindedness shows itself in many ways, and it should have been a matter of observation years before the girl faces the choice of a vocation. 
it is usually of little avail to attempt to turn the attention of the girl who is definitely not thus minded toward the domestic life. On the other hand, the girl who is naturally so minded will respond readily to suggestions leading toward the occupations which require and appeal to her domestic nature. The great majority of girls, however, are not definitely conscious of either home-mindedness or the opposite. They are in fact not yet definitely cognizant of any natural bent. It is these girls who are especially open to the influence of environment, of what may prove temporary inclination, or of false notions of the advantage of certain occupations in choosing a life work. These are the girls, too, who are likely to drift into marriages they are likely to drift into any other occupation, and whose previous vocation may have added to or perfected their home-making training or, on the other hand, may have developed in them habits and traits which will effectually kill their fullness in the home life. These, then, are the girls who are most of all in need of wise assistance in choosing that which may prove to be a temporary vocation or may become a life work. The temporary idea must be combated vigorously in the girl's mind. Many an unwise choice would have been avoided had the girl really faced the possibility of making the work she undertook a life work. The temporary idea makes inefficient workers and discontented women. There is in most cases, especially among the fairly well-to-do. No dearth of assistance offered to the young girl in making her choice. Much of the advice, unfortunately, is not based on real knowledge either of vocations or of the girl. Knowledge is absolutely necessary to successful judgment in this delicate matter. From a large number of letters written by high school girls let me quote the following typical answers to the question, Why have you chosen the vocation for which you are preparing? Ever since I could walk my uncle has been making plans for me in music. My first ambition was to be a stenographer, but my father objected. My father's choice was for me to be a teacher, and before long it was mine too. My ambition until my junior year in high school was to be a teach.